0: Dr. Duggan, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Bow Sounds.
1: It's great to be here, Jen and Peter. Can't wait to hear your great questions. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> That's I, just yeah. up. I just I just kicked over a speaker. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGEN. My name is Jennifer Lee.
2: My name is Peter Liu, and we are both pediatric gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Today, we have the privilege of talking to Dr. Christopher Duggan. He is a a pediatric gastroenterologist at Boston Children's Hospital. He's the director of the Center of Nutrition and the medical director of the Center for Advanced Intestinal Rehabil- Rehabilitation there. He's a professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and also a professor in the Departments of Nutrition and Global Health and Population at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. So in addition to his work in Boston caring for children with intestinal failure, He has also spent a lot of his career and time in other countries, most recently uh, Tanzania, um, working on how to better treat children with diarrheal illnesses and malnutrition.
0: So in addition to talking about his experiences, we also talk a little bit about how we and young people in pediatric gastroenterology can get involved in global health. So really great discussion. Looking forward to it. On to the show. On to the show. Dr. Duggan, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Bow Sounds.
1: Thanks, Jen and Peter. My pleasure to be here.
0: And we are going to start with perhaps the most challenging question. So for our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence?
1: Uh, well, one sentence, that's a tough one. I guess I am your uh, traditional Massachusetts born and bred uh, Irish American left of center Celtics fan uh, guy <laughs> and uh, uh, I have, um, although I've lived in New England most of my life, I've, I've traveled a lot as we'll, as we'll talk about uh, and I've had this uh, great pleasure of having a, a really fun and, and um, rewarding career in pediatric nutrition and gastroenterology to date.
2: As a, uh, so I grew up in Los Angeles as a diehard Lakers fan. Um, oh, yeah. It's okay, we'll put those differences aside. Um we, just, just uh, move concrete. on.
1: <laughs> there was a great 30 for 30 on that very topic. Yeah. Narrated uh-huh.
2: by uh Ice Ice Cube. Yep. I mean it's like magic, Larry Bird. Um yeah. anyways, okay, moving on. So another question <laughs> that we've been asking everybody during this uh COVID-19 pandemic that we thought was just me a few months, but has stretched on to over a year. <laughs> um, so tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you have. Read, listen to, or watch recently that you would recommend.
1: Oh, great question! There's there's a a handful. Early in the pandemic, um, I read, well, at least in the the summer, I should say, I read this uh, really uh, short but very effective book called "Racism: A Short History." Uh, It's by George Fredrickson, and he's a a Stanford historian, and he really. very uh, astutely looks at this history of how race and racism have been handled politically by our country and others, um, teaching me, for instance, that actually uh, apartheid South Africa and Nazi Germany learned how to classify races based on the U.S. experience with Jim Crow laws in the 1930s. So really uh, crazy stuff and, and gave me a lot of insight into our current situation so that's a, a book that i would recommend uh i also uh earlier this fall tried to plow through war and peace and i got through <laughs> oh, a, a wow. hundred pages and i stopped it was just impenetrable <laughs> with all the different russian names and stuff but i did start another book uh similar to war and peace it's called stalingrad uh and it tells the story of the um, russian front in world war ii and it's uh similarly uh about 900 pages so that's a good one wow and the, the TV yeah. show, uh, Peter, the TV show you'll be happy to know is set in Los Angeles that we've been, my wife and I have been binge watching. It's called Bosch. It's a great uh, police show. I'd recommend it.
2: Okay. I uh, Bosch. It. The
1: title character is this cerebral but cynical uh, police detective okay. in, uh, mm. in Los Angeles.
2: Yeah. I mean, Russian literature I love as well, but I feel like that one... The TV show is probably more my speed right now. (laughs) I don't really have any recommendations. My recommendations are too embarrassing to say out loud.
0: Oh, okay. (sighs) Well, let's move on then.
2: Yeah, I think we should move on. (laughs) All right.
0: Okay,
1: go ahead.
2: Oh, let's hear it. Oh, oh, no. Yes. Okay, so currently, right now, I'm watching a show called Warrior. It's on HBO Max. It was made by Cinemax. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's actually, so Bruce Lee had pitched a TV show in the 70s. I love him. About you know a uh, Chinese immigrant coming to work in kind of the railroads or whatever in San Francisco, oh, yeah, 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 sure. And sure. about him kind of like obviously around that time there's a lot of uh, racism against Chinese and mm-hmm. like that was mm-hmm. before the Chinese yeah. Exclusion Act, mm-hmm. right? And so it's about right. him kind of uh, you know dealing with the racism hmm. in a martial arts movie type. Obviously, it's like the guy is happens well, to be a martial wasn't arts that master. The
1: whole... Wasn't that the whole theory behind the uh, David Carradine? TV yes, show? So actually, oh, that
2: was. Yeah. Uh, so this yes. was he pitched it, and then that was taken over. And then this is mm. kind of like his uh, his daughter, I believe, uh, Shannon Lee, um, has created this new version. That they feel yeah. like yeah. she felt like was more true to her to her dad's original version. What? Yeah. So yeah. only
1: elder only elderly listeners to the podcast will get the data
2: <laughs> <character>. <laughs> we'll cut all okay. that out. I'm just kidding. I think was it called Kung Fu? Maybe. Kung know.
1: Fu. Yeah. 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 Classic 1970 show. Yes. Yeah.
0: So fun fact about me: not to diverge too far, I actually have a black belt, and I yeah. almost oh, have a oh second that. degree. Oh, oh, oh. And I and and so you before we, before we got on, Chris uh, Peter was telling me us that he was interested in kind of global medicine and what have you. Yeah. Well, before I went into medicine, I was interested in martial art. Yeah. <laughs> <Wow,
2: laughs> I was actually invited awesome. to the
0: junior Olympics, which is probably what? one of my coolest achievements. Yeah, But my mom wouldn't let me go because on the, uh, you have to have a consent form because you're less than 18. And one of the things was like, if you die from oh. like a sparring accident, you can't like sue the Olympics oh, or whatever. Yeah, but, and so yeah, my mom yeah, right, was like, right. nope.
2: That was the. That was the reason. limiting factor. Oh. Yes. Oh man, I mean, I'm surprised she even like read it. You know. That is well, that is maternal. You don't know my like mother. That. Yeah. So. Right. 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 That is great.
0: <laughs> anyway, okay, okay. Let's okay, move. Okay, back on topic. Back. Okay, That's back great, to yeah. serious work. Um. Okay. So. You have spent much of your career caring not only for children in the United States with intestinal failures and other GI disorders, but also caring for children around the world with diarrheal illness, micronutrient deficiencies, and malnutrition. So can you share with us how you first developed an interest in global health?
1: Sure. I was uh, I was a young, impressionable medical student uh, 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 several decades ago, and I had the opportunity for two really important summer experiences. The one after my first year of medical school and the second after my second year of medical school, I attended Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and they had these uh, electives, uh, research electives that they would uh, uh, basically provide a stipend for, which was really terrific and important to get people into research who had never previously done research. So my first global health experience was a classic global health experience, which is, you don't have to leave the United States to have An important experience in global health. So I was on the Apache Indian Reservation for the summer of 1984, working on an oral rehydration solution study. Uh, We were were, uh, comparing uh, two different types of ORS in children with acute diarrhea. And that was really an eye-opener because it it showed me that kids, even in the United States, were having significant uh, morbidity and sometimes even mortality due to acute diarrhea. So I followed up that experience with um, a vitamin A deficiency survey in rural Zambia in the summer of 1985, and I worked with investigators uh, from the Wilmer Eye Institute who were just then really making important observations about the role of vitamin A in reducing child mortality. Um, So it was really an exciting uh, period of my career development, and you can argue I haven't strayed too far from those themes of childhood diarrhea and nutritional status.
2: So uh, since then, we saw that you've worked in a number of countries around the world and established long-term relationships. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about what other countries you've been working on more recently and how did you find those opportunities and create those relationships?
1: No, I think uh, the relationships is a a perfect word, Peter, because uh, indeed the field of global health is built on Uh, respectful relationships uh, between investigators in different countries. And uh, to that extent, I stood on the shoulders of people who went before me. Uh, I've been most recently working in East Africa, in the country of Tanzania, and uh, our relationships with investigators in Tanzania were built on the fact that uh, colleagues who preceded me in the nutrition department at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health uh, had worked and lived there for some time in the 1970s. Dr. Walter Willett, the former chair of nutrition at Harvard Chan, uh, was that person. And from his efforts and collaborations led to a host of subsequent collaborations uh, with uh, Dr. Wafai Fauzi, with myself, uh, with Dr. Chris Sudfeld and others, all working at uh, one academic medical center in Dar es Salaam called Muhambili University. So it's uh, it, it depending, we depend on prior uh, relationships, and we develop future ones in the field of global health.
0: Okay, so we talked about how we have been in this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And so how has COVID-19 pandemic affected global health work around the
1: world? Oh, in, in, in many different ways. Obviously, the most Obvious way is uh, travel restrictions, which have uh, led me not able to to visit uh, my colleagues in Tanzania since uh, February uh, two thousand and twenty. That was the last time I was there, and um, unfortunately, uh, we've devolved into a series of of Zoom calls and and meetings, all of which we used to have. But it was always, well, last time you were here, we talked about this, and when you come next time, we'll talk about that. And unfortunately, Zoom has uh, uh, replaced all of our uh, normal lines of communication uh, in all phases of our lives, unfortunately. So that's the, been the big, biggest one. Uh, the, the story of, of COVID infections in sub-Saharan Africa is a, a really interesting one and it's still evolving over time. Obviously there's been a, a big um, uh, incidence in South Africa and less so in East Africa. The question is, is that because of uh, um, limited resources with respect to testing, Uh, I know that there's uh, COVID infections in in Dar es Salaam, certainly, uh, but the recognition of the official government to that has been limited. So it's uh, the politics of COVID don't end in the United States. They extend throughout the whole globe. You know, and the other way COVID uh, pandemic has affected global health has been funding. There's been a significant shift, obviously, in the uh, resources uh, that have been uh, directed towards COVID vaccine development, but also COVID therapeutics, uh, preventive measures, uh, uh, case tracking, et cetera, that has, you could argue, uh, diverted uh, our attention from other important global health issues. Uh, for instance, for the field of nutrition, there's a significant concern that global food insecurity rates have risen substantially, and will be uh, reflected in an increase in child undernutrition, maternal undernutrition, low birth weight, anemia, et cetera, all of the nutritional outcomes that we think about when we think about improving uh, nutritional status of women, children, and other susceptible people.
2: Yeah, and as you know, I'm sure everyone is aware. Like, I think you know, vaccine purchasing by by countries and rolling out in different parts of the world, there, there's a huge variation there. And uh, I mean, I feel like, do you worry that some of this impact may have a more long-lasting impact than just, you know, uh, maybe the next few months?
1: Well, I, at heart, I'm an optimist, so yeah. I guess I would think uh, the one thing that's been... Uh, you know, one of the several important things and lessons that have been learned about the COVID pandemic has been, I hope, an increasing appreciation for the role of epidemiology to the role of public health. Uh, and I think now that the uh, the tides have turned with respect to our own government, I suspect or I hope uh, that that will lead to a, a more prominent role for these agencies um, and institutes to des- get more funding and uh, be better prepared for the next pandemic because i think we all realize it's not the last one
2: yeah and i think it's only demonstrated that you know we can't ignore what's happening in other parts of the world like variants that develop from uncontrolled infection are going to one day they're going to eventually affect us mm-hmm. exactly and, um, exactly
1: and peter and it's clearly that's one of the tenets of global health right is to say that uh, we're, we're all on, uh, in it together
2: So um, during this time, we've also seen a huge expansion in the use of technology like telemedicine. You had mentioned that some of your work with collaborators has now transitioned to more Zoom meetings. Um, What role do you see technology potentially having in improving global health as well? Maybe, uh, you know, both in this kind of current scenario with COVID, but also in the future.
1: Oh sure I mean this is w- where my optimism also shines through because it's not just communication technology that we're relying on now and and uh, we continue to rely on in our in our lives through through uh, teleconferences and such but obviously the the whole development of the mRNA vaccine was a proof of principle that people had long held as as a goal, but it wasn 't until uh, we had a pandemic to face that we were able to develop that as not just a, a safe vaccine, apparently but an incredibly effective one, which is really. You know, tremendous, right? I mean, think about it. We would have all been happy if they had published their results and said, hey, the vaccine is 60% effective. We would have said, great, but it, it's not, right. it's 95% effective. That's tremendous. And so, mirrored with that technology of vaccine development, I, I suspect uh, we already are seeing the advances in personalized medicine and personalized nutrition and increasing ability to diagnose things using molecular uh, techniques. Uh, in in my field certainly our our hope is to uh, individualize broad nutritional recommendations to certain populations so that really more specific more personalized nutritional recommendations can be given
0: uh, when you think about how long it's taken to develop some of these other vaccines it's just it's just a, a miracle
1: <laughs> um,
0: yeah, yeah. a lot of great work has gone into it. Um, okay. So, let's move on and talk a little bit about diarrhea. Um there yeah. has been yeah, diarrhea. <laughs> there has been a 90% decline in childhood deaths around the world from diarrheal illnesses yeah. in the past 4 decades. And you have done a lot of work on the treatment of diarrheal illnesses, including the use of oral rehydration therapy, zinc supplementation, and vaccines. So, what has led to this improvement in outcomes, and can you tell us more about your work in this area?
1: Sure, uh, it's a great question, Jen. I mean, it's really stupendous the reduction in mortality um, of diarrhea in children under age five in, in poor countries in the world, right? I think that the reduction has been uh, so so substantial uh, that really you can't point to one particular intervention that has resulted in that. Uh, you know, the, the interventions that I've been most uh, intimately involved with has, as you noted, included development of new forms of oral rehydration solutions. So uh, we published guidelines with UNICEF and World Health Organization to suggest that an, an oral rehydration solution of reduced osmolarity was equally Uh, safe and perhaps more effective than the standard WHO ORS that preceded that. Um, But again, the reduction in mortality preceded the adoption by WHO of this reduced osmolarity ORS. So I think that's been an an improvement, but I can't say that that's been the key issue there. Uh, Certainly improved water supply has um, been a big issue. That's one of the millennial development goals that's been met uh, across the globe. There's improvement to be made, certainly. Uh, The uh, rollout of the rotavirus vaccine has been a relatively recent development, but certainly will help reduce childhood deaths. Uh, And the use of zinc with uh, acute diarrhea episodes has also been heralded by WHO, but implementation has actually been only moderate, so we really can't attribute the reduction in mortality to zinc as well. It'll help, I'm confident, um, but I think the overall increase in living standards, the improvement in water source uh, has been really the the driving forces, as well as improved case management. Uh, One thing that that I note when I uh, go to various countries is that most... people living in cities know exactly where to bring their child when they have acute diarrhea. There are certain uh, hospitals that are well-known or, or treatment centers where people really know how to aggressively treat and prevent dehydration, uh, usually with oral rehydration solutions, occasionally with intravenous fluids. Uh, and those efforts have probably been, if I were to pick one thing, have been behind uh, decreased mortality rates as well. But the, the thing about the the mortality rates, however, which is all good news, the reduction, there's still children dying of a extremely preventable illness. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do
2: you know before moving on to the next question, kind of going back a little bit, you mentioned kind of these two very formative experiences you had in medical school, and obviously that's kind of led to this career uh working in this area like. What was it at the beginning that kind of drew you to working on diarrheal diarrheal illnesses and nutrition? Was it obviously there are, these are especially, you know, a few decades ago were huge and still are like huge, huge problems. What specifically made you interested in that?
1: You know, it's a good question, Peter. It really was just the opportunity to, to leave Baltimore for the summer. And when I got out to Arizona, seeing, seeing the burden of disease there and being just shocked to see it. Right. right. Uh, and, and then getting a, a better feel for it in working with mentors uh, to make it clear that this is really a global problem. Um, and so um, it was really what led me to pick gastroenterology and nutrition as a, as a fellowship area because I realized that this was uh, an illness uh, in a, a, a series of illnesses, not just uh, acute episodic diarrhea, but actually our research group has also looked into this idea that asymptomatic intestinal inflammation, uh, we call it environmental enteric dysfunction, has an important role in childhood growth. Uh, perhaps even in child neurodevelopment. Um, so, the, as as you and all our listeners know, the gastrointestinal tract is an amazing organ, the most important one in the body. And any kind of perturbation that happens because a child is growing up in an environment where it's under attack from either um, microbial invasion or uh, other environmental toxins um, is something to pay attention to. Mm.
2: Yeah. So, even though mortality has decreased, you know there. That's just one outcome. Like, you know, now the focus is more on, you know, making sure that nutrition and growth and development are optimized.
0: Exactly. So exactly. So, um, so as a parent of young children, um, and you've worked a lot on oral rehydration solutions, some of which taste better than others. So right. in your experience with development of these, have you tasted quite a few of these? Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes.
1: Uh both therapeutically, I've drinking them myself oh, yeah. uh and uh and when we're setting up trials we we certainly have yeah that's a common question uh and people say you know my kid won't drink it, and I hearken back uh, to my time working in one of these oral rehydration therapeutic units, if you will uh and it turns out. If, if a child is dehydrated they they will drink the fluid and if a child's not dehydrated then uh, they may not and so that's a that's a, a good uh, way to assess hydration right if you're if you're thirsty you'll probably drink it.
2: What challenges did you did you face in uh, trying to incorporate working in another country as like an integral part of your career and how did you find support from your institution uh, to help you do that?
1: Oh sure I mean I have a, a great deal of support from uh, Boston Children's Hospital and the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, where I uh, also spend some time. Uh, the The division here of gastroenterology is is quite large and has been more than happy to make sure that uh, patient care coverage back home uh, is seamless uh, when I'm traveling, and so that's uh, really important. So I, I guess if we're if we're segueing into the part of the talk where you might say, hey, what kind of advice would you give to people interested in global health? I, I would say attach yourself to a division that's large enough that's not going to uh, miss you when you uh, travel because travel is clearly an important component of this. Uh, I would also say link yourself to an institution uh, such as a School of Public Health that that uh, puts a emphasis on, on training, on teaching, on epidemiology and biostatistics because really these are the tools of the trade uh, for good research uh, anyway. but especially uh, in global health areas. Um, And I guess the third lesson that I would um, make sure people uh, who hear this podcast uh, reflect upon is uh, if you're serious about a a career in global health, really nothing beats taking a gap year or two uh, in living in another country, uh, learning their uh, culture, language, uh, diet, medical care system, government system, et cetera, um, because really that kind of experience is worth its weight in gold and uh, gives you, frankly, the credibility uh, as you enter the field to say, yeah, I, you know, I worked, I know this situation in, in at least one country, and I take these lessons uh, very seriously.
2: So we talked about some of the challenges you might face, in like you know, trying to find a supportive environment back home. Yeah. Um, what kind of challenges have you faced once, like in the other country that you're working on? that you're working in, do you feel like, uh, I, f- I feel like, you know, going to places where there's already established relationships, maybe some of that's already been, um, established, but, um, any yeah. challenges that you have come across there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've had the, the really good luck of, of most of the places I've worked with. There've been, um, previously established relationships or, a, a clear commitment by the funding agency to engage in a, in a true equal partnership. And that could include, um, uh, reciprocal experience of people, um, from the country that you're working in to, um, Either uh, meet you for scientific meetings or come to your home institution uh, for important meetings and uh, paper writings and data analysis sections, or a meeting at the funder's office, be they in Geneva, Switzerland, or Seattle, Washington, or Washington, D.C., where uh, colleagues can have a seat at the table and discuss grants and uh, review protocols and contribute to case report form uh, uh, work. Uh, all the important aspects of, of research that need to be done in a co-equal manner.
0: There's a, a big infrastructure that you talk about, and a lot of us in PGI may have an interest in global health, or maybe we did before, but may not know how to even start to get involved. Maybe we didn't have those experiences in medical school. Right. and Plus, I'm not sure my experience treating functional belly pain or EOE or IBD would even be that helpful So what can we do and what advice do you have for someone who's interested in making global health part of their career?
1: Oh, sure. It's, uh, I guess the first thing is don't sell yourself short. I mean, uh, you know, our experiences as uh, pediatric subspecialists uh, are eminently uh, transferable to the right institutions and people uh, the question is identifying those people in, in those institutions. And, and the reason I say that is because uh, many of our colleagues uh, in low and middle income countries are just thirsty for the knowledge that, that you and I take for granted, the ability to attend grand rounds, the ability to, to do uh, safe endoscopic procedures uh, the ability to think critically about histology, uh, you know, all those uh, opportunities are unfortunately still in limited supply uh, depending on uh, rural versus urban settings, depending on uh, what the infrastructure of the country is. Um, so I think that's point one. don't don't sell yourself short because you're 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 able to contribute to to knowledge generation in uh, discussion uh, is probably easier now in the days of Zoom than it used to be. Uh, I can think of you know many colleagues who would uh, enjoy joining our grand rounds or our morning reports and and contributing on that level, I think is 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 really uh, able to be done uh, moderately easily. Uh, but how to do it is the tricky part. And I think what you're saying, Jen, is that uh, yeah, you, you need to you, you can't just kind of uh, fly solo on this. you need to work with people who have established relationships, um, who have countries that they're working in, uh, who know people who could uh, benefit from uh, a collaborative uh, mutually um, uh, productive relationship.
2: I think the most formative experience in my medical school was uh, spending like six weeks in a, in a hospital in Kenya, and I mean they had Yeah. You know, residents, they had fellows, they had anesthesia equipment. I mean, I think some people have this image that there's no resources, but I mean, they had, they were doing very advanced surgeries. And so I feel like, you know, I was at one point in my life, I was like torn between, do I subspecialize in, I I mean, GI motility disorders? Like, how do you apply that to other (laughs) countries? But, um, but yeah, I,
1: I asked that question in the United States, actually. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, sometimes we do too, no, actually, no. but,
1: uh... <laughs> uh, no, only joking, only joking. No, my, you know, my collaborators in, in India are doing a state of the art body composition methodologies yeah. that uh, have implications actually for, uh, pediatric obesity trends, not just in India, but in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And so that's kind of the beauty of global health is, is, uh, learning lessons from each other.
2: Uh, I guess the main take home points, I guess, and you know, I think it's, you know, not doing it yourself, finding someone who has a, already an established relationship and who can provide that relationship that you'll kind of join into and, uh, and not selling yourself short. Like all of us have skills that can be used to help people um, around the world. You know, mm-hmm. even if it's not like the most obvious thing, like a ID doctor or something like that.
1: Yeah, no. And and the third thing is, you know, obviously recognizing kind of the the mutual collaborative nature that you'll learn as much as teach in these relationships, which is uh, really important. Uh, And I guess the fourth lesson, which is uh, sometimes a struggle for those of us who've who've, uh, gone through residency fellowship and are just establishing their own career, is take the time early in your career. um, So, you know, a gap year. Uh, getting experience is really important. I'm sure you felt, Peter, after six weeks in Kenya, you were just getting the hang of things right. before it was time to leave. So uh, prolonged experience—you can't—you um, can't
2: substitute the worth of that. What role does or should NASPAN have uh, in promoting global health?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, NASPAN, even though the title of NASPAN is the North American Society. Right. <laughs> Obviously, we've had global members for, for decades, and I think uh, our our younger uh, members' interest in global health has certainly spawned the birth of a uh, global health interest group, uh, which is a very active group and um, expanding and is uh, having a place for global health research at our NASPGEN meetings, at our fellows' meetings, I believe, um, and just making it clear that this isn't just a something just for a few members, but is really a common theme. Uh, And, you know, as you alluded to, Peter, this is something that uh, residents and fellows have a strong interest in, sometimes experience in. So making sure that NASPGIN leadership realizes that uh, global health isn't just a uh, pie-in-the-sky idea by a handful of people, but is really an intrinsic part of our identity as global citizens.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned a lot of shared learning every time you go to a new experience. And so did working in global health change your practice as a physician in the United States? And can you share any specific examples?
1: Oh, sure. There, there's almost too numerous to count. The <laughs> uh, I think ever, anyone who has worked overseas will, will realize that uh physicians there are often very much more astute diagnosticians than, than we are in the United States, right? I mean, uh, we are so quick to, to use diagnostic imaging and diagnostic labs before really thinking through a problem or recognizing the problem, frankly. Uh, and so when I see my colleagues evaluate patients, I'm really always struck by that. And I try to uh, bring that, that lesson home, certainly. Conversely, uh, working overseas makes me appreciate all of the resources that I have, have at my fingertips uh, while working in Boston, uh, not just the staff with all their expertise, but you know, all the diagnostic and therapeutic tools that we have. So it really is a, is a two-way street. The specific field of intestinal failure, you know, we're, we're always looking for a biomarker to evaluate uh, mucosal surface area or the relative health of the intestine. And that's a specific research area that uh, we've used to cross-fertilize our assessment of environmental enteric dysfunction, you know, using uh, blood-based biomarkers to assess the health of the small intestine, uh, both in Dar es Salaam as well as in Boston. So that's a, another uh, concrete example of, of cross-fertilization. Um, but even more fundamentally, I was I was thinking. Uh, you you know you asked me whether it uh, affected my role or uh, activities as a physician. I think more fundamentally, uh, working overseas has affected my role as a parent. Uh, by working in in Tanzania, I've had the really awesome opportunity to uh, bring each of my three kids there for um, several weeks each summer when they turn fourteen or so. Um, and so they really got to see a part of the world that uh, they had previously only experienced uh, uh through my pictures and uh, had a you know a life changing experience uh, uh, to uh, to to see that to uh, to work in some volunteer experiences and um, and that's been uh, really rewarding as you can
2: imagine yeah, that's awesome. Well, if you need help in the future um you know yeah. That sounds great. Let us or any of the be, again. right. again. Step one, finding someone with a, re- a relationship. I actually right. think exactly. when somebody
0: asked me what my one regret was, you know how when you get a job, they always ask you yeah. what you regret. So I only did three years of undergrad. Um mm. I don't know why. I guess I'm ambitious. I don't know. I just did three years and saves I never, money. yeah, saves money. <laughs> and I never would have met my husband if I would have waited a year, I guess. So we can say it's a win. But I go. guess my regret was I never really went to another country.
2: Mm-hmm. So I grew mm-hmm.
0: up like pretty poor and we didn't have any money to travel to another state, usually, let alone mm-hmm. another country. And so mm-hmm. college would have been one of my first opportunities and I just never did. And then in medical school, it was I probably ended up being a cost thing why I didn't do any global health experiences because it wasn't like they were funded at the time. We had to pay right. as well. Right.
1: Oh, yeah. And yeah. so
0: now I wish I would have, but I can't imagine taking a gap year. I mean, I just did 10, oh, nine and a half years of. Post med school training, right. and I can't right. imagine taking right. a gap year now. So, no, I think
1: it, has it would to be, be early. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's hard. It has
1: to be hard. early. I, I distinctly remember getting a letter from the Dean of Students at Johns Hopkins, it was May of 1984, and they said, Congratulations, you've been selected for this research internship and we will provide you with $1,500. And I thought, that is awesome, because my rent is $200 a month. <laughs> and this will provide me with a plane ticket and rent to fly to Arizona for the summer, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and obviously, the, the numbers have to change. But the concept of the institution supporting student research was uh, really vital. And the other thing is uh, you don't always have to travel too far to find important aspects of global health right in your backyard. I mean, you know, if you look at uh, uh, medical uh, and nutritional equity, uh, they, you don't have to go very far. You can, uh, I can throw the, a stone from where I'm sitting now and see underserved areas of the country uh, quite readily, unfortunately. So these themes uh, can really be investigated close at home, too.
2: As we get closer to the end of this episode, you know, we have a couple of questions that we've been asking everybody. And when you look back on your career thus far, what has been the most valuable advice that you have received and what advice do you have for our listeners?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I think we've touched upon some of these themes previously and it wasn't so much that someone sat me down and said, you know, if you're going to have a successful career, this is what you should do. It's, it, it was really uh, my observing uh, successful people and people I wanted to emulate uh, in the field, and I just uh, realized that their approach to life, their approach to clinical care, their approach to mentoring, their approach to research was was really something that that I wanted to to replicate in my own career uh, and working closely with those mentors uh, their mentors to me still um, has been probably the most important quote advice, which is you know, find someone who does what you think you could love, and uh, and learn from them as much as possible.
0: Dr. Duggan, thank you so much for this time with us today um, in your busy day. Do you have any final words for our listeners?
1: I think we touched upon the fact that people think that global health NASPGIN members are perhaps a a small. Uh, perhaps fringe group, uh, and I would say, uh, let's expand it. Uh, we only can, can learn more and do more as our, as our group increases. I would uh, truly recommend that people check out uh, the Global Health Interest Group, uh, sign up for that, hear from uh, people, advocate for more global health content in our meetings, um, and spread the word.
2: Thank you so much for joining us.
0: And we'll be doing Asa. that right now. That's right. We're spreading the
2: word. Everybody, <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. sign Good job. up for
0: the Global Health SIG today.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thanks again. My pleasure, Peter and Jen It was really great to talk with you. I hope yeah.
2: our podcast gets a, a lot of listens. That was great. Yeah. I think it was really nice to talk to him about something. I feel like a lot of us are passionate about it, but just don't really know what to do once we've already started a career in as an academic pediatric gastroenterologist.
0: Join the SIG, oh, yeah. the Global Health SIG at NASP <laughs> If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes.
2: If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things.
0: One, tell one person about the podcast.
2: Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast.
0: And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support... And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGEN Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspghan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPGEN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education. Uh. <laughs> I'm the hot mess
2: you Okay, you're, you're editing it.
0: <laughs> the money... <laughs> The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPEGIN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs.
2: As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field.
0: That's all for now. Thanks for listening.
2: Bye.